So uh, thank you for being here this morning. I'm kind of uh, the last of our elder series of these Life Verses Unpacked that Jerry was talking about. Um, so in a sense, I'm batting cleanup. The cleanup batter, as you know, is the best hitter, home run guy, uh, the save the best for last. Uh, but in this case, you have to realize what best means. In this case, our job as elders who are kind of I think I made the joke last time about eggnog. You know, it's like it's kind of a nice little break at the holidays, but if it's really good, we drink it year-round, and no one does. So I, th- I feel like eggnog's overrated. But that, the goal of the elders with these Life Verses Unpacked is to make sure that you appreciate Jerry's gift of teaching when all this is done. <laughs> so that's why I'm batting cleanup, because after today, you will really be appreciative of Jerry's <laughs> gifts of teaching. And uh, we're looking at Hebrews this morning. I appreciate Burns. Uh, reading our passage. Uh, some of you may have heard the story of the, the newlyweds, uh, just got married, went through the honeymoon in love, um, but then kind of reality sets in, move in together, get up the first morning, and it's like husband gets up, walks to the kitchen, there's no coffee. Wife didn't make the coffee. Then the wife walks to the kitchen, it's like, no coffee. Husband didn't make the coffee. I thought that's kind of what you did, you know, maybe... When they were courting, maybe he made a little coffee in the morning. I don't know. But uh, so it became an issue in their marriage. And it was kind of a, a struggle. And finally, one day, the, the wife told the husband, she goes, you know, it's in the Bible. The husband makes the coffee. And she goes, he goes, in the Bible, the husband makes the coffee. She goes, yeah, it's one of the books. He brews. So see, I'm making you appreciate Jerry. That's my job. So you're going to be looking forward to Jerry. Jerry does not issue the cheesy dad joke like I do. So I just wanted to make you look forward to Jerry coming back. So we have one question this morning, uh, and this is uh, up here on the screen, hopefully, if I did my slides right. How do you know the Bible is true? So we talked about that at the 9 o'clock hour. We got to, I love that because you get the little interactivity. How do you know the Bible is true? Um, I think different people come to different ways. Some of us. Like me, raised in a Christian home, great background. You just kind of assume the Bible is true because that's all you ever knew. The Bible is, is true. Others, I think there's kind of two different groups. There's my, my kind of side of the spectrum. You're a little bit more propositional, a little more analytical, a little more logical. And then I think there's, if you go to the other side of the spectrum, there's kind of the relational, right? Right? So my, my sister surprised me. She's here this morning. So... My sister is over on this side. She can, she can make friends with you. She's probably friends with more people here than I am right now after five minutes of talking to you. And I'm more of the analytical, propositional kind of thing. But we're all on a spectrum, right? So um, think Sarah David, right? So I wish I had her gift. She can, you know, uh, I don't know if Sarah's here this morning, but she, like, she can just walk up and talk to anyone. And so I think some of that kind of our DNA or our, our approach kind of affects how we come to that, that belief that the Bible is true. Or maybe, perhaps, you're not there. Maybe there's some doubts in your mind. So, for me, there's many ways to go. I, you know, my initial thought is, okay, let's look at the evidence, right? Let's look at historical, archaeological. Does it, is, is truth even knowable? And if truth is knowable, then does the Bible conform, does it reflect that? So, I'm going to get, roll through these real quick, and you can, for those of you who are relational, y'all can talk to the person next to you. For those who are kind of more apologetics, propositional, logical, you can listen. 
And, and of course, you probably already know this anyway, so it's okay. So the Bible is unique in its origin. It's different than any other holy book, right? It's not written by one person. It wasn't a revelation that came down to Joseph Smith or Muhammad or anything like that. It was written by 40 authors over 1,500 years, right? Um, it's different languages, different styles of writing, different literary styles we see in the Bible, 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. And the amazing thing about it, I think one of the ways that we come to it is to say, how could there be that much internal consistency and coherency in something that was written by so many people over so many years? Could they have, I hate to use this word, could there have been collusion? It's, no, it's not possible. There's no, there's no collusion possible here because some of the prophecies, the prophets in the Old Testament, they weren't even contemporaries of each other. And they prophesied about things that happened hundreds of years later, right? Namely, Jesus and they, you know, Zechariah and Isaiah, I mean, and Micah, they, these guys, they couldn't have gotten together and planned this out. And then obviously, you know, how could they have predicted the future? So there's different ways we can go. Fulfilled prophecy is one of them. Obviously, the convergence of thought through all these different people of this different time period, different authors, all inspired by God with one story, the story of the redemption, right? God's story of redemption and in the person of, of Jesus. And it all points to that, that way. There's also, we can look to, how do you know the Bible's true, is we can look to the authority of Jesus himself, right? Because if he's the subject, if he's the, the apex of Scripture, then Jesus quoted the Old Testament. He quoted almost every book in the Old Testament, if you read it in the New Testament. I didn't, to be honest, I didn't, never had thought about that. Uh, I knew he quoted the Old Testament often, but he, he quotes most of the books of the Old Testament, just a few he didn't. Um, you can look at the claims that Jesus made specifically, right? If you're into apologetics, you can say, Jesus could have said easily, um, I'm going to conquer death spiritually, right? And that way, no one could have ever checked it and see, like, he, he rose in the spirit. He didn't rise in bodily form. He said something very specific. He said, I'm going to conquer death bodily, right? That's very easy to disprove, right? When I was a kid, they used to have all those shows about Nostradamus. Do you ever see those shows about predicting the future? And then it'd be on the cover of a magazine, and it was like, Everything was just vague enough, right, for it to be true. Like one, one, one uh, empire is going to rise against another, and then a guy with a beard is going to come out. and you know. So it's like it was always vague. Jesus made very specific claims, right? And uh, I wonder if I said that because you guys both had beards this morning. I wonder if I said that. I don't know. I, but y'all both have such great beards. Y'all both have good beards. Um, but... Jesus made specific claims, right? He said, I'm going to... And so those could have been disproven. And the Bible stood the test of time. 2,000 years, the most scrutinized book in history, the most studied, the most challenged, and it stood the test of time in a way no other book has. So there's those ways we can come to believe the Bible is true, right? And for me, those are very reassuring. Uh, the Bible claims it's God's Word. There's no question about that. If we look at uh, 2 Peter 1.20... Um, Know this first of all, that there is no prophecy of Scripture that is a matter of personal interpretation, for no prophecy ever came through human will, but rather human beings moved by the Holy Spirit spoke under the influence of God. So the Bible claims to be God-inspired. It claims to be transcendent. It makes that claim. So it's not like it, there's any, again, no mealy mouth about it. The Bible's just like Jesus. The Bible made the claim, prove it or disprove it. Second um, Timothy, a more familiar verse, all Scripture is inspired by God profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and righteousness. But again, this, this idea that it is transcendent truth, it is God's word, right? So 
I just told you all that, the apologetic stuff, but now I'm going to tell you my story with the Bible, which is kind of flipping that over a little bit. So I was very blessed to be raised in a Christian home. Like I said, we went to church. I was, my parents modeled faith for me, uh, and uh, got married, moved to Carrollton, uh, probably at that time would be at best kind of a nominal Christian at the time. Uh, my wife, who, who probably had less Bible teaching and doctrine her bring, was a more faithful person, and that's why we went to church. We started attending the Ridge, and not long after, went to a Sunday school class, and the Sunday school teacher uh, asked me to go to breakfast. And, he's, and I said, what time? And he said, 6 o'clock. And I said, well, why would we do that? And, uh, and he said, well, I just, you know, it's like, I'll see you on Sunday at 9.30. We don't need to go to breakfast on Tuesday at 6. Uh, so we did. And he sat down, and uh, his name was Kerry. And he, he, he started talking to me, and he said, hey, you know, just tell me your testimony. You're a Christian, right? I'm like, yeah. Uh, so tell me what you're reading and studying the Bible right now. What's, you know, what, what do you, and I'm like, well, some stuff. And so he, I said, uh, he said, you know, well, uh, are you, is there anyone you're discipling or have you shared the gospel with one lately or tell me what's like at work with your coworkers? You know, what do they think about you being a Christian? And I was like, well, they, they're cool with it and uh, stuff. And so, and then he said, so like, what, so where are you, uh, you know, uh, what, what sin do you struggle? Like, what sins are you struggling? What, what do you, what do you wrestle with or what, what sins in your life? And I'm like, okay, now, dude, you're just bothering me at this point. I go, I've kind of deflected everything I could, and now you're, you're really digging in deep. And uh, he said, well, go, go away and read Psalm 119, and let's meet again next week. And I'm like, oh. I'm like, I, I honestly want to say, if I'm being honest, back at that time, we were the young newlywed, no kids couple at the church at the time. Uh, so I was like, you know, I've been in church my whole life. I can handle this guy, no problem. I, I got it. I'll, I'll read Psalm 119, come back, we're good. And so I read Psalm 119. And you guys probably, probably already knew this. I didn't know. I've been in church my whole life. But I was like, someone, I think it's really only about one thing. It's the longest chapter of the Bible. So I'm like looking at it. Go, okay, great. Hey, you made me read the longest chapter of the Bible. I should have said something when he asked. But I didn't know there was the longest chapter of the Bible at the time. So I read it. And it's like, it's all about God's word, God's law, God's precepts. And it says a lot of interesting things, right? The sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Your word's a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path right? We see all these things in Psalm 119, and it keeps going back over and over to this same one idea. But it said something weird that I, ha- that, that I guess I'm sure I'd heard many times preached or talked about, uh, maybe in a Sunday school class I went to, but I never, it never connected. David's response to the law, the instruction, the precepts, the decrees, the ordinances, right? I think it Anthony Riccadelli, who wants to sit around and talk about ordinances, right? But that's what you do as a Plano City Councilman, right? Who gets excited about ordinances? But David, in response to ordinances, says, they're my delight. They're my pleasure. I love them. They're better than gold and honey. I will sing about your ordinances. I'd like to hear that in a Plano City Council meeting, right? And I was like, that's weird, right? So he, he got me, right? We came back the next week, and I was engaged. I'm like, this is, why, why, is, why is he singing and joyful and so excited and talking about delight and pleasure about decrees, ordinances, and precepts, right? I mean, you guys have read the Old Testament. I mean, it's, it's hard to get super excited about some of that uh, 
some of those ordinances about, you know, how you handle a rash on your arm and what you do. I mean, it's like I don't sing about that. Um, so I got discipled, right? I started getting, he started discipling me. He got me in. And this is when it kind of changed for me because I knew of the Bible, right? But I hadn't really engaged it and really read it for myself. I hadn't really kind of dealt with it, studied it, engaged it, read it on, with an open heart and open mind to find out what God really had to say to me. I think, I believe, I was a believer. I, I, I accepted Christ as 12 and was baptized. But I don't, I don't, it, it, and, and for where I landed on that is it really doesn't matter. Today, here we are, you know, it doesn't matter. I, God used those things. God doesn't make mistakes. I had all those blessings in my life. And at that time, it was time for me to, to for God to pierce, right, to be pierced. So uh, I'm just going to share with you a few things, and they may seem weird to you because the one thing about the Bible is it's true. It's God's word. It's true whether we believe it or not. I, I know that, but it speaks to us differently at different times in different ways. The truth is the same. The application is different in each of us. The timing the, the Holy Spirit uses. And these are the things that where I was dealing with at that time, and some kind of jump ahead in time, but I'll just share a few of those with you. So the what I, what I realized is, or what changed is, the Bible tells you about God, right? The Bible tells you about God's story. But what, when I really read it at this point in my life, what the Bible told me about was me. It was telling me about me. It was, it was and it wasn't pretty. It was, laying, it was peeling it back, right? So these are some of the, the ideas. 1 John 2.16 and uh, these other verses. This, this idea of friendship with the world. Um, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And then James says, adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And in Matthew 28, you look for Jesus maybe to come in and be Jesus' love. He's going to soften it up a little bit. And by the way, let me back up just a little bit before I hit that verse. So one of the things as we started discipling in, in, in God's word, he went back to the sin question. He goes, you know, a lot of times the, who you find, who God puts your life to disciple, to, to, to walk with, is someone struggling with the same sin as you. It may not be someone that's the same age as you or someone necessarily that's the same life, but they're struggling with the same sin as you. And he said, you know, he'd ask me, he said, so do you struggle with lust? And I'm like, yeah, so, you know, why don't you pass the coffee and have another pancake or whatever. And he goes, did you hear me? I go, yeah, why don't you pass the coffee and let's whatever. And maybe we can meet it later tomorrow or whatever. So it's like, yes, I do. And what I found is, is that he said, well, I do. He said, I struggle with it. I struggle with my thought life. I struggle with impurity. And he said, he goes, you know, the only way to overcome that is for God's word. It's got to be in God's word. And uh, so back to friendship with the world. Jesus came in and said, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I was like, you kind of read James or read some of these other things and they kind of, and you expect to, to read Jesus's words and to kind of soften it up, right, a little bit. Well, just the opposite happened. It's like, man, I'd never, had I really read that before? I mean, I'm sure I've heard it, but what was Jesus saying there? And then jumping ahead to James 1, 4, and 15 was another verse we kind of went to. He talked about, Impure thoughts. Where does these impure thoughts, this struggle with purity, this struggle with your thought life, where does it lead? And it says, each one, when he is tempted, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when he has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, 
it brings forth death, right? So this ties back to the Psalm 119, right? My, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And that's when the scripture comes in, it pierces, but it also provides the solution too, right? So uh, that's what started happening. Ephesians 5, 4 was the next thing that, that I, I realized this is talking about me. This, this, this book knows me. There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, right? So I was like, sticks and stones break my bones, but words never hurt anyone, right? So no, that's actually completely wrong. And so at this time in my life, these things were like the, God's word piercing through and, and un, uncovering my conscious thoughts in a way that I knew it was true. It was talking about me. This is real. This is not uh, something that I could read in any other book. Matthew 12, 36 and 37, again, Jesus speaks to the impure thoughts, friendship with the world. Now we're talking about our words. I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So that raises a lot of questions, right? As someone who struggles with impure thoughts, as someone who struggles with my words, I always felt like my, my words were a way to make people laugh or to uh, probably, in hindsight, make myself feel better, right? My job was to give everybody nicknames and kind of put everybody in their place and, and, and uh, in high school and college. And it's like, man, I was taught correct doctrine that we're saved by grace through faith, Right? It's not anything we do or don't do. It's the work of God. It's the work of Jesus on the cross. We're saved. But here it says, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So how do you reconcile that, right? Now, I know some of us come from different places. We talked about it at 9 o'clock. Some of us were raised with no background, unchurched. A lot of us, maybe our church background or our faith background was, um, and I think this is true with can be true with uh, Catholicism and some of the other uh, faith backgrounds, is that it was the opposite. We were taught that I have to be good enough. I have to work. I have to do, you know, it's like God's going to look at the ledger and see who did good and who did bad. And if there's more good, then I'm I'm okay, right? And that's wrong too, right? Mine was the correct doctrine, right? We're saved by faith through grace. It's not me. But I was missing this piece, Somehow, it was being preached to me and taught to me and modeled for me, but I missed it. I did not get that, that part of it, right? I asked John to sing his song that he wrote, Holy Calling, this morning, which I love. In the, I think it's the third verse. It said, will they say, what will they say? Did we walk in the power of saving grace, right? So there's this idea of saving grace, and I kind of always said, do you sit in the power of saving grace? You rest in the power of saving grace, yours? You're docile or static in the power. John wrote, well, did we walk in the power of saving grace? And I think that's what God was unpacking for me with these verses in this time in my life. Another issue, another, some others that I'll share with you just by way of testimony, and I won't go over these in detail, but submission to authority. It's just something I never really thought about. Um, as a Christian, I was like, well, if the, authority, if the person in authority is good, if they've earned my respect, if they're making good decisions, I submit to their authority. If they're not, then I'm going to buck. I'm going to bow up. All right? It's not what the Bible says. The Bible's clear. 
We, we're, we're to submit to those of, uh, in authority over us. It doesn't matter if they deserve it or not. God put them there in his sovereign will. They're in authority over us. My, my boss at work, government leaders, church leaders, within my marriage, we're to submit to one another. And there's even a verse that says, Ephesians 5.21, all Christians should submit to each other, right? We should be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This idea of submission just was not in my thinking. And there's another time that God pierced my heart and showed me what was really there and how it didn't line up with his word. Um, two more I'll just share briefly. One is money, right? Uh, when I read the story in James where he said, you know, come now you who say today, tomorrow, we'll go to a city, we'll engage in business, we'll make money, right? You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. And it's like, man, it just hit me. And it's like, yeah, that, that's talking about me. And then lastly, again, we go back to Jesus. What is Jesus? How, how does Jesus pierce, right? He goes straight to the cost of the whole deal, cost of discipleship. So Luke 14, 33, none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. Okay, well, can, pretty, pretty straightforward and pretty direct and pretty piercing, right? And then Luke 9, 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me, right? So take up your cross daily, right? Walk in the power of saving grace. Don't sit in it. And this is what God revealed to me. So this week, my son Gray was a trooper and got four wisdom teeth removed. And it made me think of this passage that I read in a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, which is actually taken from a series of radio uh, interviews he had done. But it talked about how God works with, with us, and he uses the analogy of going to the dentist. And I'll say that I learned, because I don't think I'd ever noticed this before, but I learned this week that you've heard the expression, give an inch, take a mile. Evidently, I guess if you're British and you're in the, writing in the 50s or 60s, it's give an inch, take an L, and an E-L, and an E-L is the length of your arm. So evidently, the original expression is, if you give an inch, he'll take your arm. Evidently, we've changed it to take a mile, I guess, because we exaggerate as Americans. I don't know. Um, so just so you have context when you get to that part. I'm not put, I didn't put this up because it's a little long, but stay with me and you'll, it's pretty clear. C.S. Lewis writes, when I was a child, I often had a toothache, and I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me get to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not until the pain became very bad. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not, now, did not doubt that she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also give me something else, and that would be a trip to the dentist the next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from the pain, but I cannot get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I know those dentists. I knew if they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth that they had not even begun to ache yet. They, would need, they wouldn't let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they would take an L. Now, if I put it that way, our Lord is like a dentist. If you give him an inch, he'll take an L. Dozens of people go to him to be cured for some particular sin which they are ashamed like pornography or physical cowardice, or maybe something that's obviously interrupting their daily life, like a bad temper or drunkenness. But he'll cure that, and he'll do it, but he will also not stop there. That may be all you ask, but if once you call him in, he will give you the full treatment. 
That is why he warned people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that is what you're in for. Nothing less, nothing uh, or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I'm going to see this job through. So uh, that's how it works. It's like, you know, you have to, I don't want to go until it hurts because I know they're going to find other stuff, and they're going to, right? That's the way God works. And that's what, the way God was working in my life. It's like you have these things that, are, that, are, that you're dealing with, but man, I, I want all of you. And that verse, when Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Man, what is that? that I, John Gardner spoke on that uh, years ago. He probably doesn't remember, but I, I remember. And he's like, he's like, you know that's possible. And I was like, that is not possible. And he's like, yeah, it's possible. You remember that? And it's like, that's not possible. And he's like, yeah, it is. And, he, and he, he proved in the Scripture. He's like, that's what God wants, right? We're not going to get there on this side, but that's what he's after, right? So when I really started reading the Bible, when I, all these things happened in my life, this became, instead of all the apologetics, propositional, analytical, this is now in my life from that time and, and to this day. If you ask me why the Bible is true, I was like, when I really read it, it, it reveals me. It shows me. It's a mirror. And, and, and yes, I need all this other stuff too. It's great to, to, have, to talk about the Bible and how it's different. But what it really does is if someone asks me, I'm like, read it. See what you think. Read it with an open mind and an open heart. This knowing and piercing heart time in my life is the, is the core of my conviction that the Bible is true. It's God's written word. And of course, all that was right there in Hebrews all along. So we finally get back to our Hebrews verse that burns red, right? The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So Greg had a prop. I'm going to have a prop. Right now, this sharp is neither sharp nor two-edged, but it's a sword nonetheless. And I think I really, what I really wanted to do was have Burns read the scripture and pull it out because I feel like if Burns had this in his hand, we would all be afraid. <laughs> Probably for Burns' sake, right? And I feel like that would have been better. But it's just something cool, and there's something intimidating about it coming out of the sheath. And this is like a toy sword. I mean, it's it's metal, but it's not even that sharp, right? So. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So the Romans came up with this idea of, or this ability, this technology to sharpen the sword on both sides. And that's one of the reasons why the Romans conquered the world. Because that was the superior technology of the day. And what it obviously allowed you to do is hit from either side. It's going to cut through, right? And it's sharpened all the way to the point. So unlike, unlike a sword like that that's a single-edged sword... It's going gonna, it's gonna, to, if you thrust it, it's going to go into whatever you thrust it into. Um, so that was my aha moment where it's like, ah, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of just both joints and marrow, all the way in through everything and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him um, to whom we give an account, it says in NAV. So he sees it through his word. His word opens us up. We're laid bare. And that described my experience. It peeled back the veneer to expose my inner thoughts and motives. It wasn't the first time I'd heard it, but it was how I received it. So 1 Thessalonians 2.13, 
it matters how we receive the word. That's why we prayed this morning from Hebrews. It said, don't harden our hearts. Let the word penetrate. Let it do its work. Paul writes, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe, right? So it's working. It's not just a one-time salvation. It's working out your salvation. Did we walk in the power of saving grace? Since that time in my life, I've had many others pour God's word into me and model obedience to God uh, to me. And... Many of them in this church, uh, I can mention the names, but in the interest of time, I'm going to jump back ahead to uh, Pastor Jerry and his teaching and what it's meant to me and my family. So now I'm just for a few minutes, I'm going to take it back to a very Jerry-type deal. We're going to do some, just a little bit of expository preaching on this verse and what Hebrews is talking about because the Bible isn't a bunch of individual things. It's all connected together, right? That's the way it's written. We talked about the, the unified theme, and it's specific especially within a book like Hebrews. So we're going to just kind of go through Hebrews very quickly and do a little, and I'm even going to give you a John Piper quote so you won't miss Jerry too much. Okay, so Hebrews uh, is a book about perseverance, right? It's about the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. It's written to believers under persecution. Um, I live with runners. My wife's a runner. My son's a runner. Uh, my the uh, Noah Witham, uh, Wes, uh, the, uh, Scott Berthel. The, there's some serious runners in this church that I really admire, and that the the, the person I love going to cross. I didn't know about cross country until Jake got into it, but I love going to these meets and just watching the the looks on these people's faces when they're exerting max effort to persevere. There's really it's a beautiful picture, really, and it's so fun to watch. And then to see the training that goes into it, and you know. I always thought, and they make a joke about this, running was, in my sport I played, running was the punishment. It wasn't the sport, it was a punishment for your sport, right? Their, their sport is the running, right? So I really admire that perseverance, and that's, when it gets hard, that's when it matters, and that's what these guys were up against. They were in a situation where they were suffering persecution, but there was something going on here, and I'm just going to run through this uh, briefly so you can see it. Hebrews 2 Three, uh, there, we'll jump ahead to uh, slide 11, I think. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? So look at the word if here in these verses. We are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Okay, but encourage each other daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Um, we have come to share in Christ, again, if indeed we hold to our original conviction. All right? Uh, Hebrews 5.11. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So what you see here is there's this idea the writer of Hebrews is getting across. It's like, these, this is a group of believers, but they're in danger of losing something. There's danger because it's if. If you don't hold fast, if you don't cling to the faith, if you don't persevere. So my logical analytical side would say, well, that means if they don't, then what happens? Do they fall away? Well, that's what we see. 
jump ahead to, to uh, John Piper's quote here. So you get your John Piper quote for the morning. There are two alternatives for those of us who claim to trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. One is to press on towards maturity to persevere in knowledge and faith and hope and holiness. The other is to drift slowly into indifference and dullness and eventually destruction. One of the main errors in the church, and he's talking about the church, that, the Hebrews, was that they thought there was a halfway point between which they could stay professing Christians, not pressing forward, but not drifting back. There's no such place. So this raises, again, a lot of questions for me as someone who was taught correctly that we're saved by faith alone, right? Grace alone through faith alone. So what does this mean? How can we, how can we, how can we lose that, right? Well, we're not, we don't lose it in that sense, but we're working out our salvation. That's all throughout Scripture. We just mentioned all the verses before in James, right? So faith is active. Hebrews 4 speaks about the rest of salvation. If you look at chapter 4 leading up to our verse, verse 12, it's talking about rest. Let us be diligent to enter the rest. Again, be diligent, persevere, cling, so that no one will fall away following the example of disobedience, right? So it does raise the possibility of falling away. And the specific example it's giving in, in Hebrews chapter 4 is verse 1 through 11, is it's referencing the children of Israel, right? They were entering the rest of the promised land. Most of them didn't make it because of disobedience, right? Our rest is salvation. It's the gospel. It's eternity with Christ, right? But we need to persevere to enter that rest. And the rest is actually, if you go all the way back to verse 2, Hebrews 4 verse 2, it's God's word. It's the gospel of God's word, right? So we're, we persevere in God's word. Salvation is God's work by faith alone, but it takes a diligent face, trusting, relying, clinging. Joshua said in Joshua 1.8, choose this day who you will serve, right? He said, for me and my house, I'm choosing the Lord. But you got, hey guys, you got to choose. There's a choice to be made here, right? It's not a, it was done one time over thing. You got to choose. You got to choose right now. You got to choose tomorrow. You got to choose the next day. So this was God's word coming alive for me, it was being peeling back my wrong thinking, peeling back my sin, and peeling back my passivity. And that's what uh, the word does, right? It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. So Jesus said, take up your cross daily, right? Choose today. We, that's something that's ongoing. Um, so back to Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 as Jerry would say, this is a, just a four, not a therefore. But it starts with four, which means because, right? So because the Word of God is living and active, that's why you need to persevere, right? <clears throat> if, the God, if the Word of God wasn't living and active, you'd have no chance because God looks in my heart. There's not, there's not much good there, right? I was sinful from my mother's birth, right? Um, from my birth and, and from my mother's womb. And, and there's not anything good there, but... If the word's implanted there, that's what's good, right? So, the power of God's word is my only hope for escaping the deception of sin that the God's word's revealing. So God's word reveals the deception of sin, right? No one's going to know. You can look at that. No one's going to, you know, it's okay. This person can't really affect your life. So if you make fun of them or talk about them behind your back, that's okay. It makes you feel better. And plus it's funny, right? It's okay if you compromise Right? You, need the, you need this business deal to come through. You can, you can compromise on your principles a little bit. Um, this is, you deserve it. You've worked hard. 
This, is, this will be pleasurable. This will be nice. This is a good thing. Right? Sin is deceitful. We talked about in the first hour, we talk about Satan deceiving us. I don't even get to that point yet. Sin, the whole sin in my heart is what's deceiving me, this deception of it, right? So that's where, the, that's where the Word of God hits all the way through. So just a real quick picture here uh, I'm going to show you guys. We, I'm, in my job, I get to do VR, create VR content, virtual reality content, and uh, some augmented reality content. We're, we do video production, but we've gotten into some fun stuff, and a few of you guys have been up there to do this with me. But I'll describe this. It's hard to see. So this gentleman here has the VR headset on, and he's looking at a full immersive world. And in his world, he stepped out of an elevator, and there's a plank, and it's 100 stories up, right? But he's still in this room. He's still in the room. And his, I've done this. Your brain knows you're still in the room, but your eyes are telling you something completely different, right? So your eyes are, and when you feel that board underneath your feet, it's a half an inch off the ground. But when you look down and it looks like it's 100 feet off the ground, your heart starts racing, the back of your neck gets sweaty. And in my case, I actually dove backwards and hit the wall in the room, and everyone started laughing. So uh, the first time I did it. So, uh, but what it, what, to me, this is an analogous to God's word is solid, it's firm, it's there, right? But sin sh- covers it. Sin shades our eyes. We, we, we see something else, right? Because it's pleasurable, it looks good, or it makes sense, or whatever, all the reasons the deception comes in, and... It's the other person's fault, and we get confused. The floor, the floor's still there, right there, right? But you're, I'm telling you, when you do this, you're, you, you realize it makes you think about how easily you can be fooled, right? And it, it obviously it goes straight to walk by faith, not by sight, is the obvious one. But to me, it speaks to this idea that without God's word to pierce through down what what sins, how the sin's deceiving us to what's really there. The floor's still really there. The room's still really there. The people that are standing around me are still here, even though I can't see them anymore when I have this VR headset on. It's pretty interesting. So uh, the la- one of the last things I- I'll leave you with is, is we talked about in first hour. In Romans chapter 7, Paul struggled with this same issue. So, uh, and this is why I think, again, the Bible is amazing because we have these heroes of the faith, but they're human, they're real, they're fallible, they make mistakes just like I do. So if you look at Romans seven, fourteen through 18, Paul talks about this. We know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what am I doing, I do not understand. I'm not participating in what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. If I do the very thing I don't want to do, I agree with the law, confessing the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. Nothing good dwells in my flesh. So it sounds almost like he's schizophrenic here, right? But this, this hits home, right? This is, our, this is my experience. Hopefully it hits home for you, but it's like Jerry preached, I'm good. And then 10 minutes later, I'm yelling at somebody after church, right, because something went wrong. And it's like, that. The, yes, the, the truth is in me. Yes, the Spirit's in me. But, man, the flesh is weak, right? And it's this battle between the flesh. So I'll skip over that but jump back to our sword here. So when uh, Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, if you can put that one back up, Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, when it talks about piercing Right? Why does it talk about soul and spirit? Why does it talk about joints and marrow? Well, I did not know this, but I found this out. So the soul represents our flesh, our carnal man, right? The spirit, right, 
is the spirit that God's implanted in us, right? John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit, right? That's when Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, hey, man, what's going on? He came at night just to make sure no one saw him, and he said, I know you're the real deal. What's going on? Jesus said, you got to be born again. He's like, that doesn't make sense. And he said, no, your spirit, right? So your soul, the flesh, the natural man that Paul talks about, the natural man, the, the carnal, and then the spirit, right? So God's word goes all the way dividing that between my spirit, the spirit of God in me, the good part, and my flesh, right? The sin deceitful part. And that's why I use the analogy of joints and marrow. Joints is the bone, the hard part. What's marrow? I'm not I'm not, never was good at biology, but marrow is the life-giving part inside the bone, right, that regenerates the bone. It's the part we need to rebuild the bone, right? It's the life-giving, regenerative part. So the soul, the spirit, the flesh, and the spirit, the carnal, and the godly, and then the joints and marrow, the hard bone or the joints, it pierces all the way through to the life-giving spirit, right? And that's where we go if you look at, I'm going to jump ahead here to, uh, the next verse after Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, Hebrews 4, 14. If you look at it, if you've got your Bible open. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy in the time of need. So that's our application. Where do we turn? There's three questions I want to leave you with. I think that's uh, slide 17. Will I allow God's word to pierce me? Right? Hebrew says, do not harden your heart. There's a willful act. There's a decision. There's a choice. Am I going to harden my heart? Or am I going to let God's word pierce? And then secondly, that once it pierces, the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, the, the, the spirit of God, if we're believers, and the, f- the flesh inside of us, what does it reveal, right? If, we're, if, you're, if you're not a believer, if you've never trusted Christ, your Lord and Savior, and repented of your sins, it may just see that, hey, I need a Savior, right? But for those of us that are believers, what does it reveal? And then thirdly, how am I going to respond? What am I going to respond? Am I going to turn to the great high priest who's passed through the heavens and who was tempted in every way but sinless? And am I going to be able to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence? Am I going to turn to the living God, right? So we talked about God's word, the Bible, right? It's God's written word. What's God's living word, right? John 1.1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, right? Glory of only gotten to the Father, John 1.14, right? So the Bible is God's written word. Jesus is God's living word who pierces our hearts, right? So the same word that pierces our hearts, that reveals and lays bare, is the same word that heals and regenerates, the marrow, right? So that's why I leave you with this morning. As John comes up, we're going to uh, observe the Lord's Supper, communion. And that's what we look at when we deserve the Lord's Supper. It's, it's examining our heart, letting God's word pierce it, right? And then coming to him to remember what he did for us, right? To remember the sacrifice he made because Our hearts are wicked and we need a Savior, right? So Jesus took the the wine and he took the bread and it was symbolic of his sacrifice as the high priest who lived a perfect life paid the sacrifice for us on the cross. So as we come observe the Lord's Supper, 
we invite you to uh, give generously and give willfully uh, as you do. And just uh, have a sweet time with God and, and think about Him piercing your heart with His Word this morning. And then we'll uh, dismiss afterwards.